Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Now, you're welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. We're bringing you a very special Screen Time this week, one of our theme show, where myself and resident critic Mark Ryle are looking at our favourite, let's call them, love story movies. Some good love, some bad love, some doomed love, some love that works out. Just wanted to play a little French music there. I'm joined now. I'm joined now by my regular partner in crime. He is the Princess Leia to my Skywalker, the Bonnie to my Clyde, the Boo Boo to my Yogi Bear. Mark uh, Ryle, hello. A plethora of uh, imagery there. Yeah, thanks. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, John. Thanks. You're good after that. So listen, we're we're looking at our favorite, I suppose, love movies uh not rom-coms because that's it's it's probably a bit wider than that but it's fair to say particularly in your list there's a lot of you know complicated love this isn't boy meets girl and everyone lives happily ever after i probably should have read the brief but look i have stuff so let's go (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i should point out as i always do in these shows this is highly subjective this is me and mark's some of our favorites uh but if you'd like to get in touch please email us screen time at newstalk.com or you can tweet me john underscore fardy to offer some suggestions of your favorite love story movies your favorite rom-coms your favorite tales of men and women and men and men and women and women when love breaks down or when love is wonderful so do get in touch with your suggestions or your disagreements of which i'm sure you will have many so mark as it's my show i think it's only Mm -hmm. fair that i go first fire away (laughs) take a listen to this we go all the way back to 1945 it's been so very nice i've enjoyed my afternoon enormously i'm so glad so have i i apologize for boring you with long medical words i feel dull and stupid not to be able to understand more shall i see you again it's the other platform isn't it you have to run don't bother about me it might not do for a few minutes shall i see you again yes of course perhaps you'll come out to catch with one sunday it's rather far i know but we should be delighted Please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. No, I couldn't possibly. Please. I ask you most humbly. You miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. Ah, yes. Now, that is a clip from Brief Encounter, directed by the great David Lean. And this, as I say, is my first choice. And in a way, it came to my mind whenever I think about love stories. I think I might have seen this when I was a kid on a, well, I don't know if it was a Sunday afternoon. How the hell would I know? But I certainly (laughs) remember seeing it as a child. And you have Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard playing this couple who are both married and they and it's told in flashback they meet each other in a railway train room a railway station waiting room and they begin this incredibly chaste i mean to call it an affair is probably overstretching it because it's really companionship now of course they kiss once or twice but this is you know i suppose the opposite of you know 50 shades of gray or nine and a half weeks this is very much an emotional affair and it's all about touches on hands and glances and they 
It's set in, as I say, 1945. So this is the England of post-war, you know, civil row suits. Everything's very chaste. I mean, they all might go home and spank each other at night, but we don't get into any of that. And what I love about this film is, you know, and I should say to listeners as well, there will be spoilers in what we're doing today. This This is probably... If someone said to me the phrase doomed love, that most comes to me because you have these two people and you know by virtue of their characters that they're not going to be able to be together. And the heartache, the sadness of that is writ so poignantly all across this movie. I just kind of find it devastating. And I I actually rewatched it this week and there was certainly grit in my eyes at times. And I have to say Celia Johnson in this it's it's her eyes. They contain multitudes. So much of the acting she does in this is with her eyes. And I'll let you in now in a second, Mark. But one thing I wanted to say to people is David Lean, you know, people think Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence mm. of Arabia, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, all fantastic movies, but monstrous epics. But he could also, this was in the early part of his career, he could also do these kind of chamber pieces and do them brilliantly. And what you also have in this is his first forays into kind of his experimentation with sound and lighting and stuff like that because the use of trains is brilliant in this and there's this bell that constantly rings to alert people to a train coming and it becomes incredibly symbolic about time and time passing and tempus fugus and all that kind of stuff this is just a classic from head to toe and a beautifully tragic story of doomed love now listeners mark ryle watched it this week because apparently despite his cinephile status he's never actually seen it so did you did you enjoy it I did. I watched it yesterday, and I, I've seen bits of it over yes, the years. Because it's um, that kind of movie that's there. I mean, it's d- referenced d- d- a lot. You know, in Only Fools and Horses, when Del Boy meets Raquel for the first time, and she says, This is a bit like Brief Encounter. And he's like, Yeah, I love it when the spaceship lands. Yeah, are you keeping, <laughs> keeping it highbrow there. Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I only watched it all the way through yesterday. And um, yeah, it's it's very, I mean, you were talking about David Lean. It's not also, it's not what you would expect from Noel Coward either. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's based on a Noel Coward play, a one yeah. act play, I think. Was it a one act play? Yeah. And um, there is, yeah, it's very of its time. It's very uh, clipped. It's very repressed Britishness. Um, but I do think that there's something really profoundly moving when a character that is so reserved as uh, Cecilia, Cecilia Johnson's, it just she explodes and she lets rip and everything comes out, you know, that mm. that it's unexpected and it kind of takes you off guard. The one thing I would say about it though, for me is I thought that the voiceover was, was a bit overused. There is a lot of her inner monologue and it is very tell don't show, I suppose is the best way I could. So I could you think it. it'd be a better movie without her interior monologue? No, I think it's, I think it's just, it's of its time. You know, it's very like that was, that was what was, those were the tools that 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 were used in the in yeah. 1945. So you know, it's not it's it's two two really great performances, and it's a it is it's it's very moving as well. Yeah, you know? it it is incredibly moving, and you know, it's, it's kind of a spoiler. But the last time they see each other, he just puts his hand on her shoulder. Yeah, 
that's it. And it's, it segues very nicely into my, the first movie that I'm going to talk Did about. I say I was done yet? <laughs> no, listen, well, I'll let you in now, but I just want to say to people, uh, and I, I, I mean, it's there, so everyone can watch it. This is on YouTube in its entirety. So if you would like to watch Brief Encounter or revisit it, it's there. It, it, it's literally just a click away, and the version wasn't bad at all. So j- just an FYI, if we're directing people where they can watch stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So the last scene that you just talked about in Brief Encounter, when um, the couple are splitting off for the final time and he places her hand on her shoulder, um, it's, you know, basically what is happening is an idiot comes along and ruins the couple's final moments together. Yes. And how much emotional force can be transferred by just the touch on the shoulder. Yeah. And I'm bringing this up because Todd Haynes does almost the exact same thing in Carol. And it has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. It must be a nod to brief encounter because the first scene in Carol and the last scene more or less is when they are breaking up and somebody comes along in a, in a, in a restaurant and ruins their, their final moments. And, um, you know, there is a touch on the shoulder very, very similarly. Yeah. And, and that's right at the start of the film, if I'm not mistaken, it is. in the and same way that brief encounter does that. Yeah. But then brief encounter does the same thing. It returns to it at the end of the movie. Yeah. Carol does the same thing. Has to be intentional. Yeah. So this is Mark's way of saying he's now going to talk about Carol, right? <laughs> As his first choice in screen times list of best love story movies i was trying to make it smooth but you've just ruined that now no no point you need to signpost these things you know okay so uh carol it's adapted it's adapted from uh, patricia highsmith's uh novel 1952 novel the price of salt and what is going on in carol is uh therese is played by rooney mara she's a shy new york shop girl she's got a dull job and a fiance i think fiance that she but she's not sure about him um she is almost invisible to the outside world. And then she meets a sophisticated and wealthy housewife, Carol, who's played by Kate Blanchett. And not only does she then begin to feel seen, but she, she senses this, this connection with Carol and what starts out as a, as companionship um, eventually develops into love. But of course their, their relationship is doomed because um, as it's 1952, uh, Carol's ex-husband, um, it gives he, him, uh, I suppose, cause to um, request for sole access of her of Carol's daughter. So she, if Carol continues the relationship, she's going to end up losing her daughter. So that's the yeah, predicament. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I think, it's he, Todd Haynes has got such a, a, a weird and, and varied filmography with stuff like Safe and Velvet Goldmine and. Uh, dark waters but there's he's got a couple of of these period melodramas in there that 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 definitely mimic the the style of of douglas sirk and the first Mm. one of those was was far from heaven with julianne moore and then of course carol from um, 2015 and the 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 level of detail in this is remarkable he's really meticulous in, in in trying to replicate that 1950s hollywood uh that look and feel right from the the costumes are incredible and on the sets and Going all the way into the like the expressions of the 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 background extras, it's it's meticulous, and this I think really captures the mood of the era, not only of you know the style, but also the the repression that yes. we were talking about in brief encounter as well, and you know what 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 you and kind of carrying on a, a same sex relationship in that time and everything that goes with it, um, and I think the style of it changes. Um, when Carol and 
Therese are together and it goes into this sort of uh, shallow focus and lots of close-ups and it's very kind of woozy and what it really does well I think is it, it, it captures that that excitement of, of first love um, and it also tackles themes that I think Douglas Sirk probably would have tackled if it wasn't if he wasn't working with the at the time he was working with the pr- production code of the Hayes code and so a lot of uh, Douglas Sirk's, you know, repressed lovers would 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 express their undying love for each other, but their with their cheeks stuck together, but there'd be no snogging, you know. Yeah, um, that is not a problem that that Todd Haynes has to put up with, though. It's a fantastic film, and I interviewed Todd Haynes for uh, Dark Waters. That's right, two, yeah. two years ago, whenever it was, and I was talking because Far from Heaven, there are very similar mm. themes, and what I love about his movies is that going behind the white picket fences of America to show, mm. and not that, you know, a gay relationship should be the underbelly, but certainly in the 1950s it was. And he evokes that so brilliantly well in Far From Heaven, but also in Carol. And because we're, you know, this is our hearts on fire show where we're talking about love stories. The chemistry between Blanchett and Rooney Mara is palpable in this movie. They are brilliant together. They, they sizzle together. It is, yeah. I suppose uh, Rooney Mara kind of plays uh, um, Therese as a bit of a cipher, if you like, that mm. she kind of gets swept up in Carol's kind of slipstream. Mm. But then on the other hand, Blanchette is is the opposite of that. She's 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 this expressive combination of strength and poise and elegance and a, a bit of vulnerability. But it's it's a. It's a, it's still a rare example of a mainstream Hollywood movie that's carried by two really strong female leads. And yes, for me, I would I would watch Kate Blanchett in anything. I think she's incredible. Mm. She was also very good in uh, Nightmare Alley recently. Do you remember? Uh, she she was in it. Which <laughs> is you not think she was very good in it? She was. Yeah, as I, as I say, she just she elevates everything. But that that was <laughs> Nightmare Alley didn't do it for me <laughs> did you like her in lord of the rings <laughs> i've never seen Lord. i've seen the first of them and that was it i got the i got the gist let's move on we're getting <laughs> off topic it's about a ring a bad Isn't ring it? it's yeah. a long walk i believe so that is <laughs> that is the entry in mark's uh, list of his favorite love stories doomed love good love hearts on fire as i'm calling it if you'd like to suggest some great love stories on screen you can email us screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me john underscore fardy now mark i have one for you take a listen to this plus you know you just get to a certain point where you get tired of the whole thing what whole thing the whole life of a single guy thing meet someone, you have the safe lunch, you decide you like each other enough to move on to dinner. You go dancing, go back to her place, you have sex, and the minute you're finished, you know what goes through your mind? How long do I have to lie here and hold her before I can get up and go home? Is 30 seconds enough? That's what you're thinking? Is that true? Sure. All men think that. How long do you like to be held afterwards? All night, right? See, that's the problem. Somewhere between 30 seconds and all night is your problem. I don't have a problem. And that was, of course, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan in what some consider the daddy of them all when Harry met Sally. Now, I said we're not doing, you know, rom-coms necessarily, but this is de facto maybe the greatest rom-com of all time. Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. So you have a brilliant cast. You also have a brilliant director in Rob Reiner. And you also have a brilliant scriptwriter in now the sadly departed Nora Ephron. And mm. in a way, it's a 
you know, a 101 and how to make a great movie, get a great cast, get a great director and get a great scriptwriter. And in a way, it's as simple as that. And when Harry Met Sally has that. And for people who don't know, it was 1991 and Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are two people who meet, first of all, in a cross-country journey from, I think it's New York to Chicago, something like that, or maybe the other way around. It's the other way around. Is it the other way around? It's Chicago to New York, yeah. And they are driving cross-country. They don't know each other. Meg Ryan's kind of snobby in a way, but very pleasant. Billy Crystal, when we first meet him, is a bit of a punk. Famously says, men and women can't be friends because men just want to have sex with all women they meet. Every woman. They meet again in an airport. They have a similar conversation. Then the action moves to modern-day New York, and they're both negotiating their complicated love lives. Will they get together? Of course they will. But en route to that, there are just some brilliant set piece scenes. The two leads are just so utterly charming. Meg Ryan is delightful mm. in it. Billy Crystal is hilarious. Sometimes Meg Ryan gets a little over the top. Sometimes Billy Crystal gets a little over the top and they both bring each other down with great, tremendous humor. There's some wonderful set pieces in it. Of course, the famous scene where Meg Ryan fakes an orgasm in the diner and the lady says, I'll have what she's having. Uh, Billy Crystal doing karaoke when his ex-wife walks in. Carrie Fisher is brilliant in it as a kind of hyped up best friend to Meg Ryan. This just has everything that you want from a love story. A happy ending, chemistry between the two leads and a story and a script that just never lags. There's there's no faff in this. Every moment of it is beautiful. And you're rooting for them, which is kind of what you want in a love story. And it's, and it's love that works out. And there's a gorgeous monologue at the end where they do finally get together about why Billy Crystal loves her. And he gives this list of the reasons. And it's on yeah. New Year's Eve. It's, it's beautiful. I feel like watching it now, Mark. I've seen it. Well, it's, it's, I've seen it quite a bit actually but Have um, you? yeah absolutely i think it's 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 a fantastic movie you can't like you can't knock it you can't not enjoy it it's just really warm and it's charming um can't remember who said it or where i read it but it, somebody described it as not any hall but a movie about people who've seen any hall <laughs> yeah there is there is definitely a certain element to that in it without doubt but i'm i'm glad you're you're a big fan of it yeah huge it's it's a definitely the the I think it's the closest spiritual successor to Annie Hall. It was, okay. It was based, uh, Nora Ephron based um, Sally on herself, and she based Harry on uh, Rob Reiner. Ah, um, okay. What, what I love about When Harry Met Sally is that it's a, it's a romantic comedy of equals. And, you know, normally the woman is there as the needy foil for the yeah. man. But Meg Ryan gets as many good lines in as, as Billy Crystal does, I think. Absolutely. Um, and they're equally as needy at times, which is exactly. great. Exactly. And for the first half of the movie, it's Harry who's the needy one. You yeah. Know, he, he's depressed and he, yeah. he needs it's a, Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's just such a, it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's charming. It's really warm. It's a love story that takes 12 years to develop, which is. <laughs> About it's, accurate. <laughs> It's pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. But as well, you know, you, you say that it, it's not the woman just being a foil for the man yeah. and his insecurity and his, and his crown of thorns or whatever, but also, which, which isn't often the case, when you look back on it now, there's very little in it that you have to go, oh, I wish they hadn't said that. That's I, not yeah. really. You're dead right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's not problematic. Yeah. Now, talking of things being problematic, <laughs> what, what, what are you what next you going for? What do you mean, John? Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about Annie Hall, and I suppose I'm going to start off by, you know, addressing the elephant in the room, 
And as, as I'm sure everybody is well aware, um, it was alleged that Woody Allen sexually molested his daughter, Dylan Farrow, when she was seven. Now, here's the thing. I'm a film critic, and my job is to try and give a reasonable and informed assessment of what is on screen and what an actor or director does outside of their work shouldn't have any effect or relevance. But listen, the, work does, the world doesn't work, work like that. And I, 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 I've read the Ronan Farrow piece, and I've seen enough documentaries to form an opinion, and I personally would come down on the side of Dylan Farrow. So having said all that, everyone is going to be different in regards to the extent that they can or they will want to do this. But I think you have to be able to separate the art from the artist because otherwise, eventually, everything is going to be off limits. And well, you make, you make a very cogent case for why we could possibly still talk about Annie Hall. And I'm kind of pretty much in utter agreement with what you said. And you mm. and I off air have talked about how we find it hard to watch Woody Allen movies anymore yes, because, because of all this. But it also, the, we have to put in the very important caveat, he has been found he guilty has, of yeah. nothing. Uh, Absolutely, twice, yeah. I believe. But that, yes. that's... We have talked about it. We have talked about it. So look, you've set out, as I say, cogently your case for why you might return to Annie yeah. Hall. So you'll get no argument from me in terms of the film on its own merits, because it is one of the greatest films ever made. It is. I mean, I think, I know there's people listening who would rather hack their legs off than give Woody Allen the time of day, but Annie Hall is a masterpiece. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's impossible to argue against it being one of the best romantic comedies ever. Um, it's a really, really smart movie that talks up to the audience. It doesn't, it doesn't pander and it expects you to keep up. I mean, I didn't get a lot of the references. I still don't. I still don't really know who Marshall McLuhan was or what he did, but yeah, I get the joke, you know. He's a Canadian uh, linguist and cultural critic. There the you so go. The Sopranos also had a great one where uh, Marshall comes from the FBI to reattach the bracelet to Corrado Soprano's foot because he's coming out of hospital back to house arrest and the guy the guy's name is McLuhan and the nurse says does that make you Marshall McLuhan and Junior's like why is that funny so uh -huh. there you go <laughs> okay <laughs> I've, anyway. I've put you off track there <laughs> just going to pick up my thoughts from the floor um it's but Annie Hall I think it's relatable because I think most of us are are, are definitely more Alvy Singer than Cary Grant and you know we're more Annie Hall than Catherine Hepburn mm -hmm. and it's this is not so much of a love story as an autopsy um because we know from the very very beginning that Annie and Alvy split up and it ends up on a melancholic note when they they bump into each other by chance and they're both with different people they're both content but they're both a little bit sad you know so this is a flashback movie but it's it's a non-linear one and yeah. it jumps around an awful lot um and the amount of different techniques that it uses is just dazzling there's for starters there's a load of monologues um which of course when Harry Matt Sally picked up on, on yeah. all the two camera stuff and the interviews mm -hmm. and that. And um, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking. There's subtitled jokes, there's split screens. There's a Disney cartoon fantasy bit. And um, it's just, it's all over the place and it has, it's got a, a manic energy. And I think the influence of this was enormous. Yeah. And it reinvigorated the rom-com. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny when you describe all the elements that are in it and which were in a way, you know, revolutionary to put them all in at the same time. It sounds like a mess. It does. But I know the, ge the genius of it is that it doesn't. It, it's a perfect film, despite yeah. 
those disparate elements because he was at the height of his powers then. And the other genius of it is that it's 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 a romantic comedy, yet it's so intelligent. You're yeah. you're not leaving your brain at the door. No, it's it's it kind of straddles that line in his career between the the out and out slapstick of stuff like Sleeper and Take the Money and Run, and then moving into the more serious Ingmar Bergman stuff that mm. he did in the the nineteen eighties. Um, <clears throat> I could go on about all day about the funny bits because yeah, I know there of which many. there are many. The, the, for me, I think anything involving the young Alvy is just gold, like eating mm. soup under the roller coaster or yeah. Joey Nichols. Um, you know, what happened to Donald? <laughs> Tell the folks where you are today, Donald. Yeah. It, it, um, it, it's endless. Or when he tries cocaine for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, it, but apart from it being really, really funny, um, what sets Annie Hall above a lot of his other work is that there's a realness there that comes from Alan writing this based on his relationship with Diane Keaton. Yeah. And, you know, rather than a lot of his other work, like Manhattan, where the female characters just are not believable on any level and that mm-hmm. was a it's a pattern that he would unfortunately continue um you know he would get older but the girls stayed the same age yes anyway listen <laughs> and look <laughs> just on the problem like woody allen but anyway we are just, where we are just on that though a special mention to diane keaton who as you say has a proper role in this and she's delightful she's quirky whimsy uh prone to falling in love and falling out of love she's delightful in it and of course it issued in a whole new era of of fashion you know with her ties and her waistcoats and her floral hats it did the the influence is is is, is it's huge yeah yeah. Well, look, I think we're agreed. Uh, Annie Hall is one of the greatest rom-coms, if not the greatest ever. You're listening to a special Screens Time where Mark and I are looking at our favourite love stories on screen. So far, we've been talking about the aforementioned Annie Hall, When Harry Met Sally, Carol by Todd Haynes, and I started off with Brief Encounter. If you'd like to add your six cents or your two euro or whatever the moniker is, you can email us screentime at newstalk.com or why not uh, tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Let's take a quick break. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week we're bringing you a special, which I'm loosely calling Hearts on Fire. Yes, we're looking at Screen Time's list of the best love stories on screen. So far we've been talking about all sorts of things, when Harry met Sally, Brief Encounter, Carol, various bits and pieces. I'm here with my partner in crime, Mark Ryle, and we're barreling through our list of our favourite love stories, our favourite rom-coms, doomed love, love that works out, all sorts of stuff. If you'd like to add to the conversation you can email us screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me john underscore fardy now mark my third entry in screen times list of best love stories on screen is i'll tell you what right you mm. know on my show most weeks i talk to someone well known about their favorite movie I um, what, I, what i found is the ones that work the best are when people go you know i was thinking about all these types of things bergman movies and tarantino but the movie i have actually seen the most is blah 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 yeah and and, and like redemption <laughs> shawshank redemption for example yeah or recently what was it moonstruck 
uh-huh. uh, Adele coffee and she loved it. And she's seen it all the time. She told this gorgeous story about how she uh, put it on after she had laser eye surgery. She couldn't even see it. She just wanted <laughs> to hear it. That's how much she loved it. Right. So I was thinking about this when it comes to rom-coms or just movies. Without question, one of my favorite movies of all time, when I think about how many times I've seen it and watch it when it comes on TV mm. is Four Weddings and a funeral. Mm. Uh, if I'm being honest, and not that it's not a guilty pleasure or anything, but I just absolutely love it. Now, I'm assuming everyone has seen this, but in case they haven't, very quickly, there are four weddings and a funeral. Hugh Grant is the perennial best man, so to speak, although he's not a best man at everyone. He's constantly going to weddings by himself with his friends. And at the first wedding we attend, he meets Andy McDowell's character, and she and he go to bed, and then they repeatedly go to bed, even though she goes on to get married. And it has this wonderful, like we were talking about brief encounter. In a way, it has a similar kind of Englishness, except they're a lot more upper class and they use the F word a lot and they drink a lot. And we don't really know if any of them have any jobs. They just seem to spend their lives going to weddings and parties. And it is a beautiful albeit occasionally corny love story about falling for the wrong person because they're unavailable and then marrying the wrong person, but eventually it all coming together. And, you know, it has this beautiful tragic ending that becomes joyous because Hugh Grant finally is going to get married himself and Andy McDowell shows up and it must be you know, the greatest romantic nightmare ever to be at a wedding that you're about to get married and the person you really want to be marrying comes in and says, you know what, I just got divorced. I'm in essence available. And he's literally in the church going, bagger, bagger, bagger. And it's just delightful. And with Hugh Grant, you have, you know, a modern day Cary Grant. I don't think he gets enough credit for what he can do. And what you also have in the movie is a delightful uh, supporting cast. Simon Callow, uh, just delightful as the person who will end up being the source of the funeral and his lover, Will, and friend and companion will give him that glorious speech of stop all the clocks. And you also have Kirsten Scott Thomas who gives a beautiful, beautiful scene in it where she admits that she's actually in love with Hugh Mm. Grant's character. And I spoke to Kristen Scott Thomas for uh, the new version of Rebecca a couple of years ago. Oh, man, yeah. And I actually asked her about that scene, and she remembered it very fondly. Take a listen to this. The reason I wanted to do that film so much was um, because of that, that, that particular scene. You know, it's the obvious thing. I'm your best friend, but I've always been in love with you. She's confiding in her best friend. And then she, what she's saying is this incredible confession of unrequited love. And the, and the person who experiences that just feels so small. And it's such a kind of, um, it, it's such a brave thing to do. And yet I don't think she was doing it consciously. I think it just sort of fell out. It just fell out of her mouth, this confession. It just, I find it incredibly moving still, actually. Yeah, Chris and Scott Thomas there talking to me about that famous scene, one of the many famous scenes in Four Weddings and a Funeral, where she admits to being in love with Charles, the Hugh Grant character, and alas, he's not in love with her. So that is my third entry in my favorite list of romantic movies, love stories on screen, Four Brilliant. Weddings and a Funeral. Mark, your thoughts? It's- it's uh, you, you, it's it's one of those 
uh, rare examples of everything working. Yeah. From the cast to the script, you know, it's just, it's, it is, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. It's really charming. I think it's definitely the making of Hugh Grant. And yeah. I do think that he went on to struggle for a very long time with what four weddings turned him into. Yeah, and I don't absolutely. think he was, he wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah. Like he's entering a period of his career now that's really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's um, he's made peace with that and now he's it's going yeah. to be interesting to see where he goes. And you have to give him a major kudos to where he went with the press as well, because he, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. did a lot of stuff. And also the funeral scene though is a beautifully affecting scene. I know it's almost become parodied at this stage, but uh like in the Gavin and Stacey TV Don't have show. Yeah, you 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 have one of the characters reading out stop all the clocks at a wedding so it's become but the actual original funeral scene in four weddings and a funeral is just is beautiful it really is. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um it's definitely I think Richard Curtis's best movie. Um yeah, although I, I don't I don't actually mind Notting Hill but I think Four Weddings is, is is absolutely his best. Yeah, no, I really enjoy Notting Hill. I suppose the only thing about Notting Hill is you just really feel it's kind of... M- more you know, of the same. Yeah, like almost down to the exact, you know... Play the hits. Yeah, snotty yank falls in love with bumbling Englishman. But anyway, let's not talk of strangers now. So Four Weddings and a Funeral. Hey, let, let's take a little clip. This is only the, the second time I've ever, I've ever been a best man. I... I hope I did the job all right that time. The couple in question are at least still talking to me. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they're, they're not actually um, talking to each other. The, the, the divorce came through a couple of months ago. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with me. Apparently, Paula knew that Piers had slept with her younger sister before I mentioned it in his speech. <laughs> the, the fact that he... But with her mother came as a surprise. But, um... So that was four weddings and a funeral. Mark, where do you want to go next? I want to go back to 1986. Well, you're want... allowed. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Pretty in Pink. Um, I, as far as I can recall, I don't think I've ever talked about a John Hughes movie. For No, I don't think you have. And this is an unusual choice. Most people will go for The Breakfast Club or yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day oh, Off. But of course, yeah. we, are, we are talking about love stories. So sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> I guess I don't know yeah we are talking about love stories aren't we <laughs> this would be I think this one would kind of fall on the 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 um the bad love stories uh yeah. pile rather than the good ones um I think the main reason that I, I I don't bring up John Hughes is that I think you really have to be of a certain age to yes. together and it's not something you can go back to in later life without cringing and, and toe curling so hard that you you ruin your shoes and <laughs> um, but uh pretty in pink I'm going to talk about it this because it's peak John Hughes. It's got teenage angst by the bucket load and it captures perfectly, I think, what it feels like to fall in love um, as a teenager, which is probably one of the reasons why it's so unpleasant to watch as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on one level, I suppose it's about class. It's that, that same problem as, as Darcy having more money than Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice or Edward having more money mm-hmm. than Eleanor in Sense and Sensibility. Um, it is, it's an emotionally raw movie and nothing is dialed down and it makes a virtue of teenage melodrama and heightened emotions and not suppressing that of just going with it. So the story, in case anyone hasn't seen Pretty in Pink, when they well, were I, I think there would be plenty of people who hadn't, so do okay. tell us the story. 
You're probably right. Anyway, Moni Ringwald is um, Andy. She's a uh, poor girl from the the wrong side of the tracks. And she falls in love with the ludicrously named Blaine, um, who's played by um, Andrew McCarthy. And Blaine is one of the rich kids in school. And his friends are all snobs and they all look down on Andy. And then she in turn is ashamed of where she's from. And then you have John Cryer playing Andy's best friend and third wheel ducky. Um, he is besotted with her, but she's put him firmly in the friend zone. And then, of course, in the end, there's a prom and Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy end up together. But um, the original ending had Andy rejecting him and going off instead with, with the, the more interesting ducky. Um, but the test audience hated it. So Hughes and director Howard Dutch had to go back and reshoot the new ending with Andrew McCarthy in a, a, a pretty bad wig. Um, <laughs> This was the third movie that Ringwald did with John Hughes, and um, it was also the last movie that they did together because immediately after Pretty in Pink and having to change the ending, Hughes, he wanted to do the same story again, but he wanted to reinstate the original ending. So they, the, he and, and Howard Dutch, the, the same director, they made Some Kind of Wonderful in 1987, ah. which was almost exactly the same story as Pretty in Pink, just with the gender swap. So in that one, you had Eric Stoltz. He was the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. He falls in love with Leah Thompson's rich girl, but he ends up with, this time he ends up with his weird mate who's uh, played by Mary uh, Stuart Masterson. And some kind of wonderful, it's it's almost the exact same movie. And he Hughes wanted Molly Ringwald to play the weird friend role, but she turned it down because she thought it was too similar. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, he fell out and Hughes didn't uh, speak to her again. Um, oh dear. It, it, I, yeah. never, I never knew that. There you go. Um, it's I think after this, he he Hughes moved away from the out and out teen dramas, and he started doing more traditional comedies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and mm-hmm. Home Alone. I think what he was best at, and what he really should be remembered for, is is you know how he changed teen dramas. Um, I talked about not being able to rewatch any of that stuff. I could not sit through The Breakfast Club now, or you know any of. I think the only one I can rewatch is Ferris Bueller, um, but there is. There's nothing relatable about Ferris Bueller because it's just pure fantasy. It's an almost he's an almost perfect, super confident teenager who always knows exactly what to say, driving around in a Ferrari. Um, there's nothing really relatable in that. But I think if you are speak for yourself, if you are, if you are of a certain age, you're you're definitely going to see yourself in Andy because she's not a consistent character. Sometimes she's confident and sometimes she's self conscious, and then sometimes she's smart and then. Other times she does something really dumb, just like yeah. all teenagers do when they are trying to, I suppose the best way when you're trying to find the edges. Um, what I would say is that you've never seen it. And if you're if you're over 20, maybe don't. But <laughs> if you're 14 years old, I think uh, Pretty in Pink is one of those movies that might change your life. I get, I completely get what you're saying. And I, I, I agree. I hadn't realized until I had a look this morning before we were talking that John Hughes was the writer as opposed to the director. I yeah, he, were, he was so prolific at, mm. at that time. I think from about 1984 to maybe 1988. Uh, he, like, I think he did, he made two movies a year, but he would direct one. Mm. And he would, he would write, he would write two, but he'd direct one. What it has, and you've said it, but you know, just how seriously we take ourselves and we take romance <laughs> as teenagers, this kind of Wagnerian, you know. Oh my God, yeah. Doom and gloom and just the rawness of emotion. John Hughes was just able to convey that so brilliantly well. And, and I get what you're saying. It, it's almost like, you know, wasn't he say anything as well with John Cusick with I the stereo? Don't- 
think that was John Hughes. That wasn't John Hughes, but in a similar way, Cameron, Cameron Crowe did. That's say right. Anything. But that that when I watch that now, I, I hate to say it, but I yeah. really it's a poor film. Yeah. At the yeah. time where he's holding a stereo over his head playing Peter <laughs> Gabriel, you know. So there are some movies that just make sense at a certain time, yeah. and and that's okay too, you know. Absolutely agree with you. Wonderful. So you're listening to Screen Time, listeners, and this week we're bringing you one of our theme specials where myself and Mark Ryle are nominating our favourite love stories on screens. We better take an ad break, Mark. I just want to remind people, though, if they want to get in touch with us, they can email us screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Quick ad break and we'll be right back with you. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week we are bringing you a special, one of our theme show, myself and Mark Ryle are nominating our favourite love stories ever committed to screen. This is the last part of the show, Time Moves Fast. For my final entry, I have nominated Brokeback Mountain, because it is quite simply one of the most, if not the most, tragic love story, well... I said that about Brief Encounter. It's certainly up there uh, as one of the most beautiful and poignant and, as I say, tragic love stories ever. For people who don't know the titular characters in well they're not titular because it's called Brokeback Mountain but if it was titular it would be called Ennis and Jack because Jack played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Ennis played by the sadly departed Heath Ledger are two young men who uh, get a job on a ranch in Wyoming and start to just herd sheep and goats and cattle and horses and things like that and fall in love and because it's set when it is back in the 50s if I'm not mistaken or maybe it is 60s, I think it's the actually. 63 I think yeah 63 you're right it was the summer of 63 uh, they have to keep this affair secret but it's an affair they revisit throughout their whole lives uh, on and off over the years and they continue to go back to Brokeback Mountain despite the fact that they have families and children uh, and are never able to be honest about the relationship. And I suppose the thing that's often said about it is that, you know, this is 2005 when it was made. There were very few gay love stories Mm. where the main characters were solely gay. They were often, I think this may have been the first where you could arguably claim that the two leads, that a gay relationship was so front and center. And what I find brilliant about it is, and maybe it sounds tokenistic, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that it has nothing to do with being gay about 40 yeah. minutes into the movie. It, it it lasts long in your memory. The fact that the two characters are gay is entirely incidental. It is just a love story and a brilliant one at that. And I suppose, and not to do Jake Gyllenhaal a disservice, he is perfectly service, for serviceable in what he has to do, but it's Heath Ledger because his character is a man who is emotionally stunted. He just, you know, some people say certain men over the years, they're, their heart stops there and it can never make it into their mouth. He's one of those men. And you literally see his character almost unable to speak at times. He just can't get the words out that he needs to say. And you know that were it not for him and his emotional blockages and how conflicted he is by it, that they would be able to somehow eke out a life together and go away together. But he's just not prepared or he doesn't have the wherewithal or the emotional ability to do that. However, and this is a spoiler, when tragedy strikes and he loses Jack and he goes to visit Jack's home place, he's presented with this memento of their time together. And I won't say what it is, but it is one of the most 
memorable scenes of of love ever uh, and it's absolutely brilliant so Brokeback Mountain is my final entry in Screen Time's list of the best love stories on screen directed by Ang Lee of course based on a great short story which I read by Annie Proulx who gave us books like the uh, Shipping News fantastic book but, mm. but, but the short story this is based on I read it by accident once years ago I, I literally picked up the book it was a tiny little I suppose novella might be a better way of putting it and it was long right. before the movie was made I think I found it in someone's house and I just remember thinking this is a great story I never thought of like a gay cowboy love story uh, so that was the source material it was a highly influential movie and changed a lot in Hollywood but it is first and foremost a tremendous love story are you a fan Mark? Uh, I haven't seen it since it was out um, but I, I have seen it and I do, I, I, I do think it's it's a, a really important movie yeah. Um Ang Lee just confuses me. He does stuff like this in the ice yeah. storm. And then he does, you know, trash like Hulk and that Gemini man thing with, with yeah. two Will Smiths. Um, no, as I said, I do, I, I, I saw it when it was out and it was, it's a really, really powerful movie. Yeah. I do remember thinking at the time, I wish it had subtitles because um, uh, Heath Ledger is quite difficult to, to understand. I know that that's the character. And I know that, as you say, it's all inside. Um, but yeah, it's it doesn't. It's 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 an atypical gay love story. And mm. for starters, you don't you you wouldn't normally have two actors as kind of well known as Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger doing this. But yeah. it doesn't pander to stereotypes. And not at Gyllen- all. Yeah, Gyllenhaal and Ledger, they don't express any of those cliched character traits that you would normally expect. And um, they're both, yeah, I think you're, I, like, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is really good in it. Um, uh, no, he is. It's just that, that, that Heath Ledger is, is a towering performance. Yeah, it, yeah. He is, it absolutely. Is. And, and it's he, all, it's internal, you know. Yeah. And, and the, uh, I think that he's so intricate and, and subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose going back to Brief Encounter again, this is show, don't tell. You yeah. Know? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And of course, it's a Western, but you kind of forget that. And Ang Lee does the mountainscapes beautifully as well. I mean, there's no sign of a green Hulk anywhere. But I anyway. Know. And I think that, it's the, I just remembered Randy Quaid is in it. I think it was yeah. the last time Randy Quaid was probably in a movie. And Anne Hathaway's in it. She's, but you nearly forget about everyone Michelle else. Williams. Michelle Williams as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so listen, time is against us, but okay. I want to get to your final choice in yep. Screen Time's okay. list of the best love stories. I'm going to end on a downer. <laughs> okay, good. No one would expect anything less. I'm going to talk about Atonement from 2007. Um, it's a tragedy, okay? It's a tale of unrequited love that is requited for all of about five minutes, and then it's followed by a lifetime of misery. Um, and it's about how one small event can create this ripple effect that yeah. destroys many, many lives. Um, so... What Celia is played by Kira Knightley, and she's uh, she's an upper class, uh, you know, she's she's rich, and then working class son of the housekeeper Robbie, who's played by James McAvoy, and um, they love each other in secret. Um, Cecilia's little sister Bryony intrudes on a private moment between the pair and misunderstands what she's seen, and then through a series of of mistruths and escalating events. Uh, Robbie, James McAvoy's character, is accused of rape and he's arrested and jailed. That is the first half of the movie. And then the second half of the movie jumps forward a few years during World War II, where we are led to believe that Cecilia and Robbie have, have found each other again 
after he's been released from prison and, and joined the army. But um, for me, part of the genius of atonement is in this structure because the first yeah. half, yeah, the first half of the movie is this very traditional linear narrative and the second half messes around with events and how it's presented to us. Um, and every bit of it, the, the first half is, is really beautiful, but that second half of it is, is fascinating. Um, but then you get that this last 10 minutes. And again, I have to say that if you haven't seen any of these mo- movies, there will be spoilers. Um, the last 10 minutes is makes you rethink and reevaluate everything that's gone before. Um, and that is when it hits you with this sucker punch. Yeah. The, the saddest part of the whole movie is when we discover that the, the happy ending that we've just seen with Cecilia and Robbie both surviving the war and living in a cute little cottage by the sea. This is just a piece of pure fantasy that was dreamt mm. up by, by Bryony. Um, because earlier on, we were led to believe that the teenage Bryony, she tries to make amends and to atone for the, the, the awful wrong that she's inflicted on, on Robbie. But then we find out that that never happened because she wasn't brave enough to go and visit them. And their romance during the war was confined to letters and they were never destined to be physically with each other again because fate didn't allow it to happen. Because he dies from uh, septicemia, waiting to be evacuated from Dunkirk, and Cecilia is killed with in an underground station. She's she's sheltering in during an air raid is bombed and flooded. And I'm not sure which of those two scenes is the more heartbreaking, but mm. God, it's it's strong stuff. Yeah, no, it really is. And I remember you talking about it before with a particular we're scene. The, we're talking about the best scene, that Dunkirk, yeah. that extended take. Amazing, My God. amazing, yeah. yeah. I really must rewatch this because it does contain a lot of stuff. And you're right, the, the sucker punch of the ending is, uh, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. So I should say for listeners, there are a myriad of movies we haven't got to. Everything from Casablanca to a recent one like uh, Always Be My Maybe, which I particularly enjoyed. So I'm sure people will text in and email us saying you didn't do this you didn't do this let's face it there are probably 50 percent of the movies that are made are love stories or, or, or a third of them so it's hard to get to them all however we did choose with some time and effort our favorite love stories doomed love happy love uh, where people get together and sometimes fall apart you've been listening to the screen time special if you want to continue the conversation you can email us screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me john underscore farty just remains for me to thank my erstwhile partner in crime mark ryle who went deep as he does every week for this special thank you very much mark Thank you, John.